Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bible Beacon Broadcast. As contemporary Christians, we try to understand what the scriptures teach. Even with all differing interpretations and methods of interpretations derived at to the scriptures, which could lead many to false conclusions. Here at Bible Beacon Broadcast, we challenge the listeners to test the scriptures in light of the revelation that God has provided. Looking at those men who come on the show to present their positions and why they believe what they believe. The question is, why do you believe what you believe? Are you coming to your conclusions because of what you've been told? Or is it what you have found in the scriptures that convicts you to hold to what you believe? We will have many guests come onto this program that will lighten up your minds and should create enthusiasm for the Word of God to go and open up your own Bibles. They do not want to handicap anyone to be ignorant. And anyone who listens should go and test these things according to the Scriptures. Be prepared. Be prepared with an answer from God. Introduction. Welcome to Bible Beacon Broadcast. Your host, Derek Lambert, here. And uh, I first want to start off wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. It's uh, it's really wet and rainy here in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of uh, like dragging, you know, waking up in the morning going, man, this doesn't feel like Christmas. But, you know what? I'm with my family. Um, I'm here on the program getting to share the gospel and to talk to other brothers in Christ. And, uh, you know, I can't ask for more. I can't, I can't complain. I have, a, I have a roof over my head, and uh, God's been blessing me, and so I'm, I'm just thankful for what I have today. And uh, so, you know, we're going to be talking about, as the title states, early church preterism. And uh, we have a brother on. It's, I've never actually hosted him, but he's been on the uh, program before with Michael Miano. And um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but how you doing, Paul? <laughs> Very good, Derek. Very good. Paul Rakowitz, that's it. Rakowitz. All right. I just wanted to Rakowitz, make sure. I didn't yeah. want to be... Outstanding. Well, how, how's your Christmas going, brother? Very good. Very good. We're all prepared and ready to go. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, being the title that we're going to be talking about, Early Church Preterism, Paul, um, maybe we could start with what what is the discussion we have today? 
have to do with early church preterism, and, and what are you going to be sharing with us today, if you don't mind? Yep. So I know that uh, you and I talked a little bit uh, previous to this, and one of the things we talked about was the resurrection. And so today I think we're going to cover the concept of the resurrection. Is there only one resurrection, or are there two, a first and a second? And I am going to basically talk through how the early church understood the concept of the resurrection. They sought the first and the second, and that's pretty much the teaching that I continue with today is the first and the second resurrection. So that's sort of what we're going to cover today. Awesome, awesome. Okay, um, so we're going to be dealing with uh, first and second resurrection, the idea of two concepts of resurrection versus one concept of resurrection at 70 A.D., Rather, there was a resurrection during Christ, his crucifixion and ascension, and then there's this resurrection that takes place at the end with the parousia at 70 AD. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, 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 and all of that... Oh, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead, sir. All right. So all that begins with Christ himself, right? Right. And And our whole story... You know, given today being Christmas Eve, I thought we might start with something on the Christmas story because we do have to have Christ in order to even be discussing the cross and the resurrections. So I just thought I'd start off this morning with something from the early church. This is called early church preterism. So what I do, so I have a program called the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program. And it's a subscription because I update it all the time with uh, additional information. And in that program, what I teach is Christianity from the point of view of the early church. So just to break that down a little bit, we had the first Christianity that showed itself in the Byzantine Empire. And we usually refer to those as the fathers, the early church Greek fathers. And today we know the remnant of that church as the Orthodox Church, and then as Western society came to be somewhere around 1000 AD, then you have the morphing into the Catholic Church, so you have a split before that where you start to see a Western and Eastern view viewpoint, and ultimately that results in the Western Catholic Church, so you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, which was first on the scene. We have the Western Catholic Church, which followed after. And then, ultimately, we had the Protestant Reformers, which sort of was in response to some of the things they saw incorrect in the Catholic Church. So, with those three things, we, in, in this program, I sort of focus on the faith once delivered to the saint, as best described by the early Greek fathers, and from that, I also take the best of the best from what the Western Church teaches and from the, what the Protestant Reformers teach. So it's kind of like a best of the best from all the different major denominations. So we get a good sense of what Scripture teaches and how people have interpreted that over the years. And so when we talk about, yeah, so when we talk about the resurrections, that's really what we're going to do is talk about the first and second resurrection as 
first understood by the early church. And then I'll give some information about how those things changed and that sort of thing. And I did share an article that does a nice job describing all that. But it's a very interesting subject, and I find it uh, fruitful to understand the resurrections because it's all connected to the cross and how we all get our understanding of what is applicable for us today as we read the New Testament. Amen. Well, you, uh, you, if you want to go ahead and get started, that'd be great. Yeah. Yep. So I thought I'd just start with something from the early church regarding the birth of Christ, again, given the season, and that we need the Christ. We need the incarnation to even get to the cross. So this is something uh, that is a common teaching from the early church, and it really sheds some light on what the birth of Christ is all about. So this is actually from St. John Chrysostom, who lived up until around 407 A.D. So it goes like this. I behold a new and wondrous mystery. My ears resound to the shepherd's song, piping no soft melody, but chanting full forth the heavenly hymn. The angels sing. The archangels blend their voice in harmony. The cherubim hymn their joyful praise. The seraphim exalt his glory. All join to praise this holy feast, beholding the Godhead here on earth and man in heaven. He who is above, now for our redemption, dwells here below. And he that was lowly is by divine mercy raised. Bethlehem this day resembles heaven, hearing from the stars the singing of angelic voices, and in place of the sun, enfolds within itself on every side the sun of justice. And ask not how, for where God wills, the order of nature yields. For he will... He had the power, he descended, he redeemed. All things move in obedience to God. This day he who is, is born. And he who is, becomes what he was not. For when he was God, he became man, yet not departing from the Godhead that is his. Nor yet by any loss of divinity became he man, nor through increase became he God from man. But being the word, he became flesh. His nature, because of impassibility, remaining unchanged. When he was born, the Jews denied his extraordinary birth. The Pharisees began to interpret falsely the sacred writings. The scribes spoke in contradiction of that which they read. Herod sought him out who was born, not that he might adore, but to put him to death. Today all things proclaim the opposite, for they have not been that I may speak with the psalmist, hidden from their children in another generation. And so the kings have come, and they have seen the heavenly king that has come upon the earth, not bringing with him angels, nor archangels, nor thrones, nor dominions, nor powers, nor principalities, but treading a new and solitary path, he has come forth from a spotless womb. Yet he has not forsaken his angels, nor left them deprived of his care, nor because of his incarnation has he departed from the Godhead. And behold, kings have come, that they might adore the heavenly king of glory, soldiers, that they might serve the leader of the hosts of heaven, women, that they might adore him who was born of a woman, so that he might change the pains of childbirth into joy, virgins to the son of the virgin, beholding with joy that he who is the giver of milk 
who has decreed that the fountains of the breast pour forth in ready streams, receives from a virgin mother the food of infancy. Infants come that they may adore him who became a little child, so that out of the mouth of infants and of sucklings he might perfect praise. Children, to the child who raised up martyrs through the rage of Herod. Men, to him who became man, that he might heal the miseries of his servants. Shepherd, to the good shepherd, who has laid down his life for his sheep. Priests came, to him who has become a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Servants, to him who took upon himself the form of a servant, that he might bless our servitude with the reward of freedom. Fishermen came, to him who from amongst fishermen chose catchers of men. Publicans, to him who from amongst them named a chosen evangelist. Sinful women, to him who exposed his feet to the tears of the repentance, and that the great I Am might embrace them all together. All sinners have come, that they may look upon the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Since therefore all rejoice, I too desire to rejoice. I too wish to share the choral dance, to celebrate the festival. But I take my part, not plucking the harp, not shaking the staff, not with the music of the pipes, nor holding a torch, but holding in my arms the cradle of Christ. For this is all my hope, this is my life, this is my salvation. And bearing it I come, and having from its power, I speak what I know. Glory to God in the highest, and with the shepherds on earth, peace to men of good will. This day he who was ineffably begotten of the Father was for me born of the Virgin, in a way no tongue can tell. Begotten according to his nature before all ages from the Father, in what manner he knows who has begotten him. Born again this day from the Virgin, above the order of nature, in what manner knows the power of the Holy Spirit. And his heavenly generation is true, and his generation here on earth is true. As God, he is truly begotten of God, so also is man, he is truly born from the virgin. In heaven, he alone is the only begotten of the one God. On earth, he alone is the only begotten of the unique virgin. So what shall I say to you? What shall I tell you? I behold a mother who is brought forth. I see a child come to this light by birth. The manner of his conception I cannot comprehend. Nature here is overcome. The boundaries of the established order set aside where God so wills. For not according to nature has this thing come to pass. Nature here rested while the will of God labored. O ineffable grace, the only begotten who is before all ages, who cannot be touched or be perceived, who is simple, without body, has now put on my body that is visible and liable to corruption. For what reason? That coming amongst us he may teach us, and teaching Lead us by the hand to the things that men cannot see. For since men believe that the eyes are more trustworthy than the ears, they doubt of that which they do not see. And so he has deigned to show himself in bodily presence that he may remove all doubt. And he was born from a virgin who knew not his purpose. Neither had she labored with him to bring it to pass, nor contributed to that which he had done, but was the simple instrument of his hidden power. That alone she knew which she had learned by her question to Gabriel. How shall this be done? Because I know not man. Then said he, do you wish to hear his words? The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. 
And in what manner was the Almighty with her, who in a little while came forth from her? He was as the craftsman, who coming on some suitable material, fashions to himself a beautiful vessel. So Christ, finding the holy body and soul of the Virgin, builds for himself a living temple. And as he had willed, formed there a man from the Virgin, and putting him on, this day came forth, unashamed of the lowliness of our nature. For it was to him no lowering to put on what he himself had made. Let that handiwork be forever glorified, which became the cloak of its own creator. For as in the first creation of flesh, man could not be made before the clay had come into his hand, so neither could this corruptible body be glorified until it had first become the garment of its maker. And what shall I say? How shall I describe this birth to you? For this wonder fills me with astonishment. The Ancient of Days has become an infant. He who sits upon the sublime and heavenly throne now lies in a manger. And he who cannot be touched, who is simple, without complexity and incorporeal, now lies subject to the hands of men. He who has broken the bonds of sinners is now bound by an infant's band. But he has decreed that Ignominy shall become honor, infamy clothed with glory, and total humiliation, the measure of his goodness. For this he assumed my body, that I may become capable of his word. Taking my flesh, he gives me his spirit. And so he bestowing and I receiving, he prepares for me the treasure of life. He takes my flesh to sanctify me. He gives me his spirit that he may save me. And that's something for today, Christmas Day, birth of Christ. Wow, Paul. Um, that's beautiful. Now, Christmas, you said Christmas some actually wrote that? Yes, sir. Now, let me ask you this, because <clears throat> that was beautiful, um, discussing the virgin birth of Christ and him coming into the world. So, pertaining to Christmas some, did he believe that the end of all the old covenant, all that pertained to that, was fulfilled? So the concept of early church preterism, as I understand it, is that many of, and virtually all of the early church fathers, understood fulfillment in a far greater way than we give them credit for. And so they understood, yes, that the old covenant had done, been had passed away, and the new covenant had been instituted through Christ. Now, some in the early church understood all things to be complete, including the second coming, and some believed that the second coming was still future. But the reason that I so enjoy the early church preterism is because their preterism doesn't come from the events of 70 A.D., their preterism comes from Christ and the cross. And so you can hear in the words of Chrysostom, even though in his teaching he foresaw a future second coming, you can see how much fulfillment has entered into his understanding of Scripture. And that sort of is a good place to sort of take us into this whole idea of the resurrection, because this idea that they understood about Christ becoming 
God becoming incarnate in Christ, when when we listen to what we just read through there, we get the sense of how important it was that God became man and the incredible results that would occur from God becoming man. And so mm. when Christ came, when Christ came, they already see that the kingdom had come because the kingdom is Christ, the living God. And they see in the ministry of Christ, they see the giving of the last will and testament of the testator. They see God himself coming to man and providing mankind himself the full teaching that everything that came before was always aiming for. So they see Christ bringing the New Testament into being through his ministry. So when Christ gave, as recorded by Matthew, that Sermon on the Mount, what we see there is him providing us the rules and regulations, the last will and testament, all the things that were associated with the new covenant. And throughout his ministry, when he is interacting with people, he's teaching us all the lessons of the new covenant. Everything that we need to know, he's providing us in those red letter words in our Bible. So that's how we understand this incarnation of Christ, is he's coming to bring all these things. And all that comes to a head then at the cross. And at the cross, remember, he took our flesh to sanctify us. He gives us his spirit that he may save us. So the whole idea of the incarnation is to bring to a head the battle between God and Satan. And when I use the term battle, I use that in a sense where God will be the victor in the battle. And nevertheless, it's a battle between Satan and God through the inclusion of mankind. And what I mean by that is we go back to the garden and we have God creating all these things in the first chapter of Genesis. And uh, I do believe absolutely that the first chapter of Genesis teaches us the physical creation account. And so in the first chapter of Genesis, we have God creating angel kind. We have him creating this whole universe, sun, moon, and stars, human beings, water, sea, cattle, all the creeping things, everything that we see in, on planet Earth. And in this creation account, there are many great spiritual truths that are there. And in my first book, which I wrote, which is called The Pearl, uh, I describe the first three chapters of Genesis and the physical creation account, along with uh, one version of a spiritual understanding of that creation account as seen through the cross. And what we have in all of that comes down to this. We have the interrelationship between God, the angels, and mankind. And the angels were created in the heavenly realm. Mankind was created in the earthly realm. And the angels were created to be ministers unto humankind, who were created a little lower than the angels, in order to help humankind achieve their ultimate goal, which would be to become higher than the angels. So when some of the angels understood this plan, 
they fell from their heavenly state. They fell from their first estate, as the apostle tells us. And in falling from their first estate, they were then cast out of heaven. And Peter tells us they were cast into Tartarus. And being cast into Tartarus, Satan and those angels that fell set up shop in the underworld. And their number one goal became to interfere with God's plan to bring men who were created a little lower than the angels into heaven. Their goal was to interfere with that plan to bring men into heaven. And so we have Satan in the Garden of Eden participating in the fall of Adam and Eve. And at the fall of Adam and Eve, the result of that is that the tree of life was taken from Adam. And so he no longer had access to eternal life and would thus be held captive by Satan, that fallen angel. So what we have there is this notion of the souls of humankind becoming captive to the fallen angels. And that sets up the whole story of why there has to be an incarnation and why there has to be a cross and why there has to be a resurrection and an ascension and all those other things. And mm-hmm. the way to think about it is, is this concept of when Adam was first created and he was in the Garden of Eden, we sometimes are taught that that was the greatest place in the world and God will return us to that place. But what I think we need to take into account is that God created that place and he created us with free will. And if we have free will, the reality is that sometimes we're going to choose the wrong thing. And in that first world that Adam was created in, what happened was if he ever chose the wrong thing, he would literally lose his soul. And that's what the Garden of Eden original creation, original design was all about. And so when Adam did make a mistake and fell, that ancestral sin ran throughout the lineage of humankind, and all the souls of men were held captive by Satan. What's beautiful about the new creation is that something different is true. If you or I make a mistake and fail to perfectly keep God's law, not only can we not lose eternal life for the rest of humanity, we can't even lose it for ourselves, assuming we're believers in Christ and we are washed in his blood. So the whole premise of the new creation is that we're in a much better place. We're in a place where we can live out our days and pursue relationship with God. And even though we stumble and fall throughout our life, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our evermore mediator. So we're in a better place than Adam was. Adam, if he fell, he lost not only his own soul, but the souls of all humankind. Now, that's a burden hard to bear. In our side, we don't have such a burden. Does that all make sense? Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Let me so, let me ask you this. Uh, pertaining to the resurrection, um, you know, if you don't mind, uh, getting into uh, what happened at the cross, because I know there's some different understandings between you and other preterists on, you know, the resurrection and kind of the, you know, distinctions, if you will. 
Yeah, and so understanding the backstory becomes an important part of understanding what's happening at the cross, because the whole cross is connected to, in the early church, Christ coming into the world of men in order to conquer Satan, who had won a temporary victory over humankind. That temporary victory he had won, he had won in the Garden of Eden. And the spoils of his victory were the souls of men. So the souls of men were held captive in hell, which was not a place of fire, a place of utter darkness. So the souls of men were held captive in hell or Hades. And only, from a legal perspective, only a man could save those souls and return them to their place that God had wanted them to be. So the whole story of the cross is connected to this background. Now, in my spiritual fitness program, one of the things I talk about, as I said, was not only early church preterism, but also what happened to our faith as it evolved through the Western Catholic Church and then the Protestant Reformers. So when we talk about uh, Christ's death on the cross, the early Christians understood Christ's death on the cross as his encounter with Satan and the powers of evil in which he emerged the victor. So that's a very important point. The early Christians understood Christ's death on the cross as his encounter with Satan, that fallen angel who had lost his first estate and been cast into Tartarus, and the powers of evil in which Christ himself emerged the victor, Christ the conqueror of hell. Now in the West, that teaching began to be displaced, and it began to be displaced with the satisfaction theory promulgated by Anselm of Canterbury. So in Western theology, it is said that our sins have made us deserving of God's righteous judgment, and Christ, by dying on the cross, has paid the penalty on our behalf. So in understanding our Bibles, one of the things that I attempt to do in my program is not teach a Reformed view, is not teach a Catholic view, and not teach an early Eastern view, but to take the best of the best of all of those and teach a view that is integrated with the best of the best from the collective consciousness of our race. And so in the program that I have, the goal is to teach not only the West teaching of the satisfaction theory, where Christ died on the cross to pay a penalty on our behalf, because that is a true teaching. But I also want to teach that Christ dying on the cross was just as much his encounter with Satan and the powers of evil in which he emerged a victor. So I don't want an imbalanced faith. I don't want to all know what the Reformers knew. I don't want to only know what the Catholics taught or the Western church teaches. I want to know what the whole church taught so I can integrate all of that and understand from Scripture whether all of those different things are taught, and if so, how, and where, why, and all that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. 
So um, pertaining to understanding, you know, God coming in the flesh, of course, in order for him to redeem man, he would die and resurrect. That also freed them, if you will, as a people, a covenant people, to remarry, um, which is significant with Romans 7. But um, pertaining to the resurrection, you, you hold something different than, uh, say, Don Preston, where um, Don Preston believes in one resurrection at 70 A.D., and maybe you can kind of just, just you know, give your difference of what you think about the resurrection, because I think you were right in, in building up your case to explaining where you're going with this, because um, if not, people are probably going to be lost. But I think our audience is mostly preterist, um, so they'll really they'll they'll be able to catch what you're saying in a lot of this. So how does your view on the resurrection differ from that? What kind, I guess to be more specific. What kind of resurrection happened with Christ at the cross and the, you know, the resurrection from the dead and so forth there? And then what resurrection happens in 70 AD? And just for our audience who are listening, um, while you chew on that question, he is a preterist. Um, he would consider himself just as much of a preterist as Paul and the early church, or if you will, Paul and the apostles. So he believes in an ongoing reality of applying things to his own life, and then obviously post-mortem, heaven, and you know, going with God. So, um, But that that's another side note. But the, the resurrection focus, I think, is very important in understanding uh, your two views versus, say, Dom Preston. It all happened at 70 AD. So I just kind of wanted to see if you'd be able to explain that out for our audience, because I think you did a wonderful job on the phone explaining your view and um, I'm sure the audience will, you know, catch what you're saying when you give your view. Yes. So, uh, so as you said, all that we just talked about is background to where we're heading here. And what we're going to discuss now in terms of the actual cross, the work of the cross, is not comprehensible apart from understanding what happened at the beginning and how the story was started and all those sorts of things. So the first thing to understand about the cross, remember when we read the opening and we read that the Holy Spirit created for himself a tabernacle in the body of the Christ. Remember when we read that? Mm -hmm. And so that's a vital point. For he created for himself a living temple. And that living temple, the body of Christ, was literally the New Testament temple. It is that which was remade. And so, when we have Christ on the cross, what we literally have is Christ shedding the blood in the Holy of Holies, which was his body. That blood being sprinkled on the Holy of Holies, which was his body, and the cross there. And then the Spirit of Christ exiting out from that temple, being the fulfilling of the Day of Atonement's concept of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, shedding the blood, and coming forth from the Holy of Holies. So in the cross itself... We have everything happening for the final completion of all blood sacrifice. So in Hebrews chapter 9, we have that in detail taught to us 
by the writer of Hebrews chapter 9. And he begins, I, I want to cover this because this is really important as to what's going to then happen. Because if you're a modern-day preterist, and I use that term uh, in, in uh, say, opposition to an early church preterist, then what you do as a modern-day preterist is you say that while Christ shed his blood, the blood yet did not have power. And the power only came in 70 AD when he, according to modern-day preterists, came forth out of the Holy of Holies. Now, my first comment to that is, there is nothing in any of the shadows of the Old Testament that has the high priest going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Ascension, 40 days after uh, Passover, nor is there any shadow in the Old Testament that has the high priest being, in essence, held captive in the Holy of Holies for 40 straight years while he's waiting for things to unfold for him to come out so his blood that he sprinkled on the mercy seat would somehow be suddenly effective. What we have in Scripture is the Day of Atonement teaching us that the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, spreads the blood on the mercy, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, and comes out of the Holy Holies, and that coming out shows us that God the Father has accepted the sacrifice. Now, all of that occurs at the cross, because there's no other place that Christ can apply the blood to the, to the Holy of Holies, to the mercy seat, other than in this physical realm and in this physical body. He can't take the blood. He can't carry a pail of blood up into heaven. There is no blood up in heaven. So in Hebrews chapter 9, what we have is this discussion of Christ's blood being shed, sprinkled on the mercy seat, and being accepted by God the Father. And just very briefly, we start in Hebrews 9.16. At the death of the testator, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Remember we said that the early church believed that Christ, during his ministry, provided us through his teaching his last will and testament. Now that last will and testament is just like a will and testament that you or I might have today. We can write it, we can give it to the attorney, we can store it at the bank, we can do all these things, but it's not enforced while we're still alive. And we can make changes to it while we're still alive. But the moment we pass, the last will and testament that we have prepared immediately becomes into force. Now, when it immediately comes into force, there are other things that have to happen. For instance, whoever we had assigned as the executor of our last will and testament He'll have to gather people together, get a meeting, uh, tell people what they do get, what they don't get, how things are uh, separated, how things are inherited, all those sorts of things. And then he may have to do some paperwork to make this, that, or the other thing happen. So it may take some time for the last will and testament for everything to happen that was written there. But nevertheless, at the moment of our passing, our last will and testament comes into force. And that's what Hebrew 9.16 tells us. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So while Jesus walked the earth, the New Testament wasn't yet in force, but immediately upon his death, it was fully empowered and fully enforced. For that to be true, the efficacy of his blood shed there on the cross had to be immediate. And it was immediate. 
It was immediate. So when we look at verse, let's just go through this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. This is Hebrews 9.18. And uh, verse 9.19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats <clears throat> with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Now, I understand that in modern-day preterism, and I use that term in opposition to early church preterism, modern-day preterists see in Hebrews chapter 9 the temple then standing in Jerusalem. But they see that temple then standing in Jerusalem in opposition to every generation of the church that has come before. And so I do not see the temple being spoken of in Hebrews 9 as the temple then standing, but instead as the temple being spoken of in Moses' day, just as verse 19 says, for when Moses himself had spoken every precept, he himself took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled all these things with it. It's Moses' tabernacle that's being spoken of here. And remember, Jeremiah said back in his day that that old covenant, that old temple, was already old and ready to die away. It wasn't the Apostle Paul in Hebrews who told us that. He was simply reminding us of what Jeremiah had told us many years before. So then in verse 21, we see that Moses sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Now you see here, this is what's happening on the cross. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, there is no blood in heaven. So we can't carry blood up into heaven. It, there isn't any such thing as that there. And in verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with cheese, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now think about what we started with. Remember when I read all about what's happening in the story where we have the incarnation of God in this body he had prepared for himself. In the volume of the book, it's written of him. He had prepared a body for himself. And what did we read Christensen saying? All the words he wrote are his marvelous fascination, utterly marvelous fascination with this body that came forth, which was the living God incarnate. So this another is way of saying, heaven on earth. Okay, right? so no, another way of saying that is that, you know, if you will, uh, Christ is coming as God in the flesh in a pure sense of a temple. His body would be a pure temple in that sense. His body is the temple. That's what we read, right? Right. That's, His that's body is the getting... New Testament temple. Absolutely. Right. So, Absolutely. So his body is what is being destroyed at, or his temple, quote-unquote, his temple is being destroyed at the cross. That would be what you would consider. Yes. That is the difference between what you're saying versus what modern preterism might say, hey, that temple is the temple at 70 AD. Now, before we run too far right. off on that, can you explain the, the significance of the destruction of 70 AD in, in attachment to your view? That way, we kind of understand what you think happened in 70 A.D. versus what happened at the cross. Yes, I can, and I will. I want to get, if I might, 
through the first and second yes. resurrection because I need that to explain that. Yep, that's all okay, good. Got yep. Okay, so, so in verse 23 of Hebrews 9, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things, Christ's body itself, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. See, he was the only begotten. He was in a temple not made with hands, which were but copies of the truth. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, the New Testament temple, the body that was prepared for him in the incarnation. What are we told? God with us. Heaven itself. So Christ has entered into heaven himself. You know what that verse, you know what 924 says? 924 is describing the incarnation. Christ has not entered a place made with hands, like the temple that was then standing, but Christ had entered into heaven itself, the body that had been prepared for him, to now appear in the presence of God for us. Now, where could he appear in the presence of God for us to shed this blood for a sacrifice only in this earthly realm? He cannot shed blood in the heavenly realm. realm. And to connect that, verse 925 then considered continues. So 24 finishes up. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, and 25 tells us what for. Where is the presence of God that he's entering into for us? Is it up in heaven? After the resurrection? No. 925 says, not that he should offer himself often. So he's already appeared in the presence of God for us in the incarnation in the New Testament temple. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. So, because then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Okay. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared. So when we see that in verse 26, now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared. Well, that appear in the presence is the same as 924. In 924, Christ has not entered in the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, the New Testament temple, the incarnate God, the body which he had prepared. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So if you want to think that that appearance is up in heaven, verse 26 tells you, no, he appeared to put away sin by what act? By the sacrifice of himself. That happened here in the earthly realm. That didn't happen up in the heavenly realm. That happened here in the earthly realm. So here we have Christ entering into heaven, this marvelous body which he created for himself, for the incarnation. This brings to light, you see, we started with the Christmas story because of the time of year we're in, but we started with the Christmas story because of the great, it's the signal event of all mankind, of all history, Christ, God becoming man. Because God took on the form of man and heaven on earth appeared. The true temple of God appeared before humankind walking and talking, speaking to us his will from his own mouth. And this is the marvel of the Christmas story. 
This is the marvel of the incarnation of Christ. So we have here, he didn't suffer often since the foundation of the world, but once at the end of the ages, at the cross, he appeared to put away sin, completely atone for our sin, the immediate efficacy of his blood by the sacrifice of himself. And then verses 27 and 28, which trip up modern-day preterists because of their belief that Christ's blood was not immediate. The, did not, the efficacy of Christ's blood was not immediate. Verse 27 and 28 say, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this a judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin or salvation. Well, here we have, in Hebrews chapter 9, the first and second resurrection. So what's the simple meaning of these last two verses? It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ died once, the atonement, in order to save us from the judgment, where the atoning blood would be accounted for. Not accepted, but accounted for. Think about this. The pattern laid out here in verses 27 and 28 remains in place yet today. Because today, in every generation since the cross, each of us die once. And after this, we face our own personal judgment. What this means is that if we put our faith in the atonement of Christ at the cross during this life, if we enter into that most holy place and bow at the mercy seat, who is God incarnate, Christ Jesus himself, then, and only then, will he appear to us a second time at our personal judgment, quote-unquote, apart from sin, for our ultimate salvation. And this is exactly what happened in and to that final generation. It's the example to all of us of what happens in each continuing generation. So this is the meaning of verses 27 and 28. 28 doesn't stand alone, apart from everything that came before. Remember, what started, we started in Hebrews 19, where we said, at the death of the testator, his last will and testament comes into force. The only possible way that the last will and testament of Jesus Christ came into force at the cross is if it's true that his blood was immediately all-powerful and the efficacy of his blood was immediate. There's no other way that the new covenant came into being at the cross. Okay, so let me let me ask you this, just to dig deeper on this. So, what kind of, or what happened, if you will, to kind of make it in simple terms, if you can, and explaining what resurrection took place at the cross and what resurrection took place at 70 A.D. Kind of, what is the significance, or what kind of re- resurrection took place at the cross, if you will? or post the cross with him rising from the grave, and so forth. And and what is the significance of 70 AD, if you don't mind going into detail more on that, but also explain real quick what kind of resurrection, who who was the resurrection, you know, what was the resurrection of 70 AD, and what was the resurrection of the cross, simply put. Right, and, and that's where we're at now, right? Because we talked about the fall of man and the souls of men being held captive by Satan. Yes, and... We talked about Christ, the immediate efficacy of Christ's blood at the cross, and the New Testament coming into force at the death of the testator, which could only be true if the immediate efficacy of Christ's blood was true. If the immediate efficacy of Christ's blood isn't true, then the whole concept of the testator dying and his testament coming into force 
is completely nonsense. And if that's complete nonsense, then every single will and testament in humankind today makes no sense because none of us ever come back. So no will and testament would ever come into force if we follow the modern day Federalist view. But saying all that, so what we get to is now this question of Christ saving humankind. And here we have to take into account, again, we're going to go all the way back to the early church. And I'll provide an article that provides all of this teaching. Um, It's a great summary of what the early church believed, some of the changes that occurred in the Western church, and then the reformers sort of reverting back to what the early church taught. Okay? So if you're going to say you're a reformed theologian, you probably got to go back to what the early church taught about Christ descending into hell, because that's what they did, leaving behind the Western changes that they had made. Okay? So, I'm going to start with this here from the early church. Okay? Remember, we have all these souls in hell. They're being held captive. They've lost access to the tree of life. Christ himself is the tree of life. Christ incarnate is the tree of life. Christ became incarnate because only men's souls were held captive. Say that again. Only men's souls were held captive by Satan. So God, who is a spirit, he could not be held captive by Satan. But when he became a man, then where did Christ's soul have to go upon his death? the same place that all men's souls went upon their death. His soul would have to descend into hell. That's the glory of Christ becoming incarnate. He came as a man, not as an angel. We remember that story in Hebrews. He didn't come as an angel. He came as a man because only as a man could he have access to where men's souls were in order to save them. This is the passion of the cross. So, What we see, I'm going to read this and then talk about it. Christ not merely opened, but broke in pieces the gates of hell in order to make the prison useless. Where there is neither door nor bar, whosoever enters is not detained. What God destroys, who can set up again? Earthly kings indeed set free prisoners, yet leave untouched the prison gates. But Christ broke in pieces the gates of hell. Christ went to the utterly black and joyless portion of hell and turned it into heaven, transferring all its wealth, the race of man, into his royal treasury. In this, too, Christ surpasses kings, for they send messengers, but he went in person to set the captives free. So the Apostle Peter says, Our Lord, when he was in hell, set free all who were kept prisoners by death. Okay? So that's the basic idea of what we see in what is known as the harrowing of hell. So we have this concept, harrowing of hell, H-A-R-R-O-W-I-N-G, the harrowing of hell. And anyone can go online and Google the term harrowing of hell, and you'll see a picture come up. And the picture is showing Christ descending into hell after the cross on Good Friday. And as he's descending into hell, you'll see under his feet the gates of hell being crushed. You'll see under the gates of hell being crushed, Satan being crushed beneath the gates of hell. You'll see Christ reaching out his hand 
to those saints who had been held captive there since the fall. And you'll see pictures of Adam and Eve and of all the uh, prophets and all the saints and Job and all the good men of history. You'll see Christ reaching out and lifting them up into his presence there in what had been the darkness of hell, but by his presence he had made paradise. And in that picture, you'll see at the top letters in Greek. And the letters in Greek spell out A-N-A-S-T-I-Anastasis. A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S. And Anastasis means resurrection. So right in this picture of Christ's descent into hell, which is referred to as the harrowing of hell, they have one word written there, and it's called resurrection. So the early church and the church at large has always believed that the first resurrection was on Good Friday. Okay, let me, let me pause you there. Hold on one second. Let me make mention real quick. Okay, so this would make sense with the resurrection there of the – so you believe that that is the old covenant saints, if you will, the saints that came up to Christ. And to give proof of that, if you will, even to go a step beyond that would say, you know how it says that the, the, the saints also rose out of their graves, if you will, and they appeared to many. And it wasn't just Christ that appeared to many, but there were also saints that appeared to many. So it was like a sign that there was a resurrection that already had taken place there with Christ at the cross. And, and that would be uh, you know, showing, hey, there was a resurrection that, took, that already took place. Now, what resurrection yes. takes place? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, is that talking about that resurrection, or is that talking about the 70 AD resurrection? And what kind of resurrection is that that takes place in 70 AD? Okay, so in 70 AD, then, we have a different resurrection, so let me get all the way through to that, okay? So okay. we have, uh, we have uh, let's see here, let's see here. So, in Christ's descent into hell, we have him resurrecting all the Old Testament people, whether they were a part of the Israelite nation or whether they were a part of the nations. All who heard his voice and came forth were raised to new life. What we have then on Holy Saturday, now remember the modern-day preterist camp, like every camp tries to understand the uh, the feast days, the cycle of the feast days. And what's amazing is the church has always kept the feast days. We just call them different things. So in the church age, we don't call uh, what happened at the cross. We don't call it Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits or the Wave Sheep Offering. What we call it is Maundy Thursday, Good Friday. Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday. And what we have in those three days, and this is vital to understand, what we have in those three days is on on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, we have the shedding, applying, and accepting of the blood and the bringing into force the new covenant. And because the efficacy of Christ's blood was immediate, we have the immediate results of that blood, which is the raising of those saints from death unto life in Hades. Then, on Holy Saturday, we have Christ celebrating with those holy saints this new life that they've come into. 
And if you were Adam waiting from the very beginning, or worse, Abel, who was the first to die, this would be a marvelous day. So we have here the fulfilling of the high holy day of unleavened bread, which always spoke toward what? The end of sin, right? The unleavened bread feast always spoke towards the end of sin. Well, here we have Christ celebrating the end of sin with those saints who were raised in Hades. And then on Resurrection Sunday, what we have is the Feast of First Fruits, where we have the first fruits from hell raising up from the dead. So that Resurrection Sunday is not what the church considered the first resurrection. They considered Christ's bodily resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection that already occurred from the immediate efficacy of Christ's blood. Once that blood was shed, applied, and accepted by God the Father, it had such power that it immediately raised all the dead to life. So when Christ rose, Resurrection Sunday, he was the first fruits of that new life that had already come to be. And so his resurrection is the crowning proof of the first resurrection. It's the crowning proof that God exists. It's the crowning proof that we have life. Further, in, Rep, in Hebrews 13, we're told that Christ was, his body was raised from the dead by what power? The power of the eternal, the blood of the eternal covenant. If the efficacy of Christ's blood was not immediate, but instead, as modern-day preterists say, didn't come into full force till 70 A.D., then the body of Christ could not even have been raised. So Christ coming up from the grave was, by the power of that blood of the eternal covenant, and his being raised from the dead was not the first resurrection. It was the first fruits of the first resurrection that had already occurred. Now, think about it like this, because one of the things that modern-day preterists want to do is they want to prove that the rest of us won't be bodily resurrected, okay? Now, I happen to agree that the rest of us will not be resurrected in body, okay? But they go about trying to prove that in a lot of ways which are unnecessary, because if modern-day preterists return to the view that the immediate, immediate efficacy of Christ's blood was come to pass at the cross, and that blood immediately raised from the dead those saints who had been held captive by Satan in hell, then you have proof that the rest of us will never be raised bodily in the very story of the first resurrection. Think about why Christ was raised bodily. Christ was raised bodily because his soul could not be held captive by Satan because he had never sinned. So by coming as a man through the incarnation, he enabled his soul to descend into hell. But because his soul, as Hebrews tells us, was an indestructible life, when he descended into hell, it wasn't like Satan could take him captive, which is what he thought. By killing him, he thought he would take the soul of God himself captive. But because... Christ lived the perfect sinless life and was the perfect sacrificial lamb. When his soul descended into hell, it was not subject to captivity to Satan. That's the whole reason that when he descended into hell, he overcame Satan and could free those captive saints. It's also the whole reason that, not the whole reason, but a big part of the reason that he raised bodily 
because he had no resurrection apart from a bodily one because his soul was always alive. It was indestructible. So we have Christ raising bodily as the first fruits of that spiritual resurrection that occurred on Good Friday. And therefore, that's the pattern for all of our resurrection going forward, is we partake in that spiritual resurrection, which, which is the first resurrection, meaning then that the second resurrection has no power over us. And so now we're ready to go over to that second one. Am I making sense so far? Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, because we've had this conversation before. Let me ask you this, because... Uh, this is a good question that was raised by someone also, and, and it's kind of been on my mind. If sin was taken away at the cross, then why 40 years till the resurrection, or if you will, he's appeared once. Or, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins of many, Hebrews 9:28, And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. What, what kind of salvation is he bringing then? And, and I know you said that you, you believe, you know, as much as the apostles and, and those uh, after Christ, you believe that that second, uh, you don't believe that there was actually a 70 AD resurrection? Or if you don't mind, can you explain that? Because I know you said you believe yes. you're just as much a preterist and a futurist as them in that time. What kind of this, uh, resurrection took place then? Yes. So I want to cover, I'm going to talk about that right now. I want to okay. cover this from Gregory of Nyssa, who is speaking of what happened here at the cross. So he says, according to this theory, Christ, being God incarnate, deliberately concealed his divine nature from the devil. Now, how did he do that? Through the flesh, by becoming man, so that he, the devil, mistaking him for an ordinary man, would not be terrified at the sight of an overwhelming power approaching him. When Christ descended into hell, the devil supposed him to be a human being, but this was, and this is how he described it, but this was a divine hook disguised under a human bait that the devil swallowed. So the devil, by killing Christ on the cross, admitted God incarnate into his domain. And by doing so, the devil himself signed his own death warrant. And incapable of enduring the divine presence, he was overcome and defeated, and hell was destroyed. So that's a way that Gregory of Nyssa describes what happened at the cross. But now, let's go forward, okay? So remember okay. in Scripture where remember in Scripture where we're told that all Scripture is for written for an example for us. Do you recall that? You're talking of uh, all, all of it is teachable or for teaching and doctrine and so forth and uh, uh, edification. You're talking about that, that text? Yep, yep. And yeah, so in the King James, it says it's an example for us, right? Right. It's an example. All Scripture is an example. So that's an important point because what you have here in the 40 years is the example going forward for every new generation. So if we return the coming of the kingdom to the cross, if we return to an understanding of the immediate, immediate efficacy of Christ's blood, then what that means is the kingdom immediately came, and everything that unfolded from that point forward is an example to us in every generation about how we're to live. So when we see the apostles 
being filled with the Holy Spirit, what are they called? They're called the administrators of the kingdom. As administrators of the kingdom, in essence, they're Christ's executors. They're going to implement his last will and testament. They're going to administrate the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom has already come. They're going to administrate that kingdom on earth that has already come in heaven, in that spiritual realm through the first resurrection. So what we have in baptism, so all the things that you see there are things that we continue to do today because they're applicable to us today because we live in the same functional economy with God as they did. When we come to believe in the first resurrection, we're believers. We then take on the responsibility as ministrators of the new covenant to administrate Christ's kingdom on earth. And then when we're done with our task, just like they, we then reach our end and face the second resurrection. So we have in the 40 years, we have people coming to faith, being baptized, and think about what baptism is. You there, Paul? Paul, are you there, brother? We lost you there for a minute. Uh, I can't really tell if uh, you're on here. I can't really hear you at all on the program, but um, let's see. I don't know. Let's try and mute him and see if he comes back on. Hey, Paul, you there? Ah, looks like uh, we might have lost him there. Um, and I'm still connected. Well, I'm trying to get the uh, point out because I know that some people are asking the question. Paul, if you can hear me, uh, call back. Uh, he, he, yeah, I think I lost him. Let me know. Uh, someone messaged me. Let me know if uh, if I've lost Paul here. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm trying to get the question out. What specifically happens in 70 AD? Because I know that he has stated that modern preterists believe, you know, that it's 70 AD. Hold on. Here is his call. He's called in. One second. Let me make sure I got this right. I think it's the 248 area code. Paul, is that you? Yes. I disappeared for some reason, and I don't know why. Yeah, I think you got raptured. That's what they call the rapture. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) There you go. Hey, let me let me ask you this, because because I know um, uh, some of the listeners have and they want to get right to it. Um, I know you said that the forty year period is kind of an example. It's kind of like, if you will, a cyclical example throughout all ages, world without end. Now, let me ask you this: Is there any particular um, historical significance in salvation in seventy A.D. that happens then and only then that doesn't happen over and over again? Meaning 70 AD, is there anything significant about the destruction of the temple, um, the bringing salvation or appearing a second time? Do you think that that was the second coming of the Lord, the appearing again but not for taking away, if you will, by you know blood, sacrifice, but rather bringing salvation and judgment in 70 AD? Do you think there's anything significant to that? Right. So, so in... So let's get through all the 40 years, and then we come to 70 A.D. 
And what we have here, do you recall the question Christ asked? Will I find faith on the earth? Do you remember him asking that question? Yes. Okay. So the reason he asked that question is because in the first creation, Adam failed, and so Christ did not find faith on the earth. But now that we're in the new creation, we're in the new world order, we're in the new covenant, and humankind has the Holy Spirit. The question is, will he find faith on the earth? And what we see in 70 AD is, yes, he did. He found faith on the earth. Because even humankind, now that we're new creatures, we could overcome in this new creation the devil, and we could make our way to heaven through faith in Christ. And so, thinking now through, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, when we think about what happened at that second coming, one of the things that we forget to read is that, um, is that Christ brought with him some group of people. Okay? So we have... Uh, let's see here. So we have now. We don't want you, my brothers, to be in any doubt about those who fall asleep in death, but to grieve over them like men who have no hope. After all, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we can believe that God will just as surely bring with Him those having fallen asleep through Jesus. So what we have there is in verse 14 the recognition by the apostle that. There are souls with Christ already who have partaken in the first resurrection. Christ will bring them to the second resurrection. And all those still alive and those who are dead who didn't partake in the first resurrection will also all be brought to the second resurrection. So we'll have all of humanity there, and Christ will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be brought into the fullness of the kingdom. And the goats will be cast into the lake of fire. And in the lake of fire, they'll either, one, be eternally punished if one believes that, or two, they'll be annihilated if one believes that. So at the second coming, this is what we have. We have Christ's return. And when, let's go back to the cross, when Christ rose from the dead as the first fruit, he then ascended up into heaven. And at his ascension into heaven, he brought all of those saints who were living in the first resurrection past this life up into heaven with him to wait under the altar. They didn't get to go to the fullness of heaven yet, but they were with him in heaven under waiting, quote-unquote, under the altar. These are the ones he brought with him at the second resurrection. The second resurrection is all about judgment. So remember earlier we read that verse that said, I believe it was in Hebrews, where we read that all men die once, but then the judgment. Okay? That's what's happening mm-hmm. in the second resurrection. We have all men have, during their lifetime, the opportunity to believe in Christ. And if they choose to believe in Christ, then they participate in the first resurrection. All men, when they finish this life, they then go to their judgment which is exemplified in form here in the first generation. So we have in this first generation the coming of Christ, and we have him bringing judgment. And we see that judgment 
in his parables about the separating of the sheep and the goats, that's the heavenly realm, but we see evidence of that judgment in the destruction of Jerusalem, in the destruction of the city, the temple, and the old old covenant polity. So just like when Christ descended into hell after he died on the cross, he was an indestructible life who descended into hell. When he did that, what do you have in the earth? You have earthquakes, you have the rocks rent in two, you have physical signs of the spiritual reality that's happening at that moment in time. And when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, you have that spiritual reality being demonstrated through a physical manifestation of those souls who were seen in the in the holy city, which you brought up earlier. Here at 70 AD, you have the spiritual reality of the second resurrection occurring, bringing everything up to date. Everyone who had not yet been judged was brought up to date in 70 AD. That's happening in the spiritual realm, but you have evidence of that happening in the physical realm with the destruction of Jews from the temple and the Old Testament polity. So all that came to an end there with that. And that's not the initiation of the kingdom. That's the end result of the kingdom in every generation. So today in our generation, when we pass from this life to the next, every single one of us, whether we have believed or not, go to the second resurrection. We go to the judgment. And at the judgment, if we believe in this life, we are wrapped in Christ's righteousness and his robe, and so we're welcomed into heaven. If we are not of the first resurrection, we go to our judgment, and just as they were, we're cast into the lake of fire and either punished forever or annihilated, depending on what you believe there. So that's what I see as 70 AD. It was the culmination of God's story, it wasn't the implementation of his kingdom. It was the final event that fully implemented his kingdom. And in bringing the final event in that form, it provided us an understanding of functionally what happens in every single preceding generation. Okay, so pretty much the reality of what took place historically in the first century um, you would you would pretty much say, look, just like this happened in you know, there's 40 years is always representative of a generation in the scripture. So this 40 year idea or generation idea that we see in the first century, you would say that also is applicable um, throughout every generation, throughout history, ongoing, world without end, Christ will be glorified and so forth, and that there's also some form of judgment that is an ongoing reality forever, in a sense, right? Yes. Throughout each generation. Each what? Uh, there's, in a sense, there's always that first resurrection that started with Christ. For each person who is a believer, they are resurrected in the first resurrection. But the second resurrection, which actually deals with judgment, um, he didn't come, if you will, to uh, so you know die, of course, because the first resurrection happened with Christ, and that will never change. But there's always going to be a judgment in each generation, is what you're stating, and that's an ongoing reality throughout every generation world without end. Yes, absolutely, because there are two deaths. We all accept that there's a physical death, and then remember that verse in Scripture where God tells us, don't fear one who can kill your body, 
But fear the one who can kill your soul. Don't fear the one who can kill your body, but afterwards has no further power over you. But fear the one who can destroy your soul. Okay? So God is the one who can destroy the soul, not Satan. Satan could take captive the souls, but he could never kill them. And so what you have is all of us face that first physical death. Only those who don't believe face that second death. So just like in Revelation where we speak of the second death, that's what that is, the second death. And remember, the whole story brings us, why do you think that in 70 AD, why do you think that all of Scripture was already written? Because the whole story had been told. And now our task was to understand the functionality of that story ongoing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I understand where you're coming from. Um, let me ask you this. We're wrapping up the show here. My wife just pulled up at the house. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions that come out of this and uh, more discussions. And we can always learn from each other and continue. I, I love your emphasis on Christ and the cross. I really do. I think it's very important to understand what happened and took place. And I think that there's something there that we need to investigate further. Um, but how do people get a hold of you, Paul? And uh, if you can give your information out, you know, letting people know how to get a hold of you and everything, we'll go ahead and wrap this program up, have a wonderful Merry Christmas and stuff, and then uh, we'll come back after the uh, Christmas break. Well, I appreciate that. So uh, on Facebook, people can reach me. Uh, they can friend me, and I'll friend them back. And then also at my website, which is spiritualfitnessprogram.com. That's www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. And um, I want to finish with this. You know, uh, somebody, a friend of mine on Facebook, had asked a question yesterday about did Christ bring his kingdom through violence? And I noted there, and he had quoted someone, and I agreed with the quote. What I said was, Christ brought his kingdom through passionate love. He brought judgment through violence, but he brought his kingdom through love. And I think that is a vital piece of information for anyone who's a Christian. We don't believe in a God who forced his kingdom upon us. He brought his kingdom through the passion of the cross, through his love of us. And it was the judgment that engendered the violence. It wasn't the bringing of the kingdom, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you, um, so Facebook, guys, if you want to get a hold of Paul, if you want to ask him questions, please be gentle. If you disagree, just ask, and uh, he'll take as much time to, you know, explain it. Um, I've also given the opportunity for Paul to be able to take more time out and explain this further. We'll see about possibly having Paul get on a show and, and uh, maybe even doing his own thing on one of the days this uh, during the week if you're in, interested in hearing more on what he has to say. Um, but uh, we're going to get out of here and wrap this up. Let's close in prayer, Paul. If you'd lead us out, that'd be wonderful. And then uh, we'll wrap it up and have a great Christmas. How's that sound? Sounds good. So, awesome. uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time together. We thank you for sharing. And we pray that we all would keep in mind that Scripture is a difficult thing. And the basics are there, and we all understand and can can agree on the basics, 
But when we work on all those things that are a little bit harder, that are a little bit deeper, that maybe take us this way or that, that we would do so in the right mindset and with the right care for one another to help one another learn those things you would have us to learn so that we can live in peace with one another. And thank you for becoming incarnate because the whole thing starts with that signal event in history, you becoming man. So we thank you for that and for all of your gifts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul Rockwood, so much for coming on, brother. I really am thankful You're for welcome. you getting on this. Yeah, I appreciate it, and I've enjoyed the time with you very much. Yeah, awesome, brother. Well, look, um, we'll plan something out. We'll let everyone know. We'll ring the bells and let them know come to church, all right? <laughs> very good. Well, God bless you, brother. Have a good one. All right. God bless you, too. Thank you so much, Derek. Merry Christmas.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.